This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, folks. Steve and I are taking the day off, but wanted to recommend this episode as a rerun. There is another Ohioan tucked into this story who has his own thrilling mystery, and we're going to share it with you in the next week or two. So we thought another listen to the very exciting life of Civil War spy Elizabeth Stiles will give you more context and set the scene for that upcoming episode. As always, thank you for your ongoing support of our podcast. And now have another listen to episode 104 the life of Elizabeth Stiles and her connection to Madison Seminary. Always feeling low from unexpected blows. Seems the things he thought about himself were true anymore. Thought he had the juju, doesn't know what to do. Everybody seemed to want to show him the door. Sharon like the Red Baron She begins to tell him that there ain't nothing wrong Just keep going round, don't let it get you down let you... Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to a clip of Paul and Sharon by David Zuder David, a singer-songwriter from Wadsworth, is our featured Ohio music artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, I, I don't know. If you're, a, if you're a building that's 170 years old, do you have to be haunted? Uh, yes. I think the cutoff is 120. Anything above 120, you have to be haunted. You have to be. Okay. Well, up in Lake County, in the village of Madison, there is a 170-year-old building that is, of course, said to be haunted. Not surprising, if some of those 170 years you were an insane asylum, and some of those years you were a military hospital, and some of those years you were an old age home, you are going to collect a lot of emotion and get a reputation. The place I'm talking about is Madison Seminary. And among all the spirits that walk those halls, you might spot one in a long, billowy black dress from the Civil War era. Era, a tall, handsome, confident woman. Frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if she winked at you. Her name was Elizabeth Stiles. And if ever I could talk a ghost into sitting down for coffee and sharing their life story, this is the one I would pick. 
Elizabeth closed her eyes for the last time inside the walls of Madison Seminary in 1898, at a time when the building was known as the Women's Relief Corps. It had been nearly four decades since the Civil War had ended, and the country needed rest homes for aging army nurses and the wives of its Civil War veterans. And even though Elizabeth was born maybe just a dozen miles away from Madison in Ashtabula, it's rather remarkable that she was here at all because her life's adventure had taken her to 19 different states and Canada. And much of that traveling was in service to her country as a Union spy hired by President Abraham Lincoln himself. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to where this story began. Ohio was a young state in 1813, only 10 years old. John and Clarissa Brown moved their family from Middletown, Connecticut, to the banks of the Ashtabula River. It was the western edge of the United States back then, a wild frontier of fertile but raw country. New arrivals traveled on roads that were rarely bigger than the width of their wagon. And as soon as they picked a homestead, they had to get to work quickly, cutting down trees and building their own houses, barns, and businesses. The Browns had two sons when they settled in East Ashtabula and began turning 57 acres into a farm in an area called Bunker Hill. But they were only getting started with their family. They added six more children, and smack in the middle of this big family was little Elizabeth, born in 1816, three years after the family had made the move to Ohio. Elizabeth was a sponge, eager to learn anything and everything. Her mom, Clarissa, was a nurse, and she often took Elizabeth with her on calls to attend births and illnesses. Elizabeth picked up a lot of medical skills before her mom sadly passed away in 1829 at the age of just 36. From her dad, John, Elizabeth learned the role of politics. He was active in the community and served on the Ashtabula Village Council. He also taught her how to use a gun. He was an expert rifleman. And Elizabeth started learning how to handle, maintain, and use guns at the age of five. She was also a skilled horsewoman and spent many of her childhood days on hunting trips with her dad. Elizabeth and the state of Ohio came of age together, and she watched as Ashtabula grew into a large settlement with active steamboat traffic in the harbor and even plans for a railroad to come through. But she was restless, and after one of her brothers moved to Chicago, she took off after him. At the age of 21, she joined him in the Windy City, supporting herself as a seamstress, teacher, and nurse. She was a very independent woman. She didn't marry until she was 30, and when she did, she chose a man named Jacob Stiles. Jacob was a perfect match. He had the same background. His family also had settled in Ashtabula after coming from Connecticut, just like her parents. And he had the same passions. They were both abolitionists and abhorred slavery. 
1859, Elizabeth and Jacob moved to Shawnee, Kansas. Jacob became a grocer, and Elizabeth went to teach at the Indian Mission. By this time, they were raising three children. Two of the children, Clara and George, were from one of Elizabeth's sisters who had died. She and Jacob legally adopted them, and they took the Stiles name. The third girl was named Sarah. Historians aren't sure if she was a biological child or if she was adopted also. Either way, their family had grown to five. In the months leading up to the Civil War, it was no mystery to their community what side Elizabeth and Jacob were on. They were outspoken supporters of the North. But this was a dangerous time to be on either side in Kansas. You see, in 1854, four years before the Stiles moved to Kansas, it had been made a territory. And in doing so, Congress told Kansas its citizens should decide for themselves whether they wanted to become a free state or a slave state. This ignited a rivalry between both factions within the state, but especially caused issues on the border with the neighboring state of Missouri. Missouri was a slave state, and they did not want a free state neighbor. There were lots of violent clashes that actually led to the state earning the nickname Bleeding Kansas. And Elizabeth and Jacob soon found themselves in the thick of it. A newspaper in Bellevue, Kansas, recorded a disturbing incident that happened one Fourth of July when Elizabeth and a fellow teacher decided to celebrate the holiday with their students. They and their young scholars marched around the village green carrying the stars and stripes, then continued into some woods to have a picnic. After settling onto their blankets, a man rode up on his horse, handed Elizabeth a note, and galloped away without a word. Elizabeth opened the note to find a warning. If she ever paraded around with that Union flag again, she would be tarred and feathered. In 1861, the Civil War began, and there were times Elizabeth would disappear for brief journeys and then return. People in town began to suspect that Elizabeth was reporting on the activity of local Confederate sympathizers to Union troops who were stationed in nearby Fort Leavenworth. Turns out, they were right. Later in life, Elizabeth told of one such mission in which she, Jacob, and her daughters had captured a cannon from Confederate partisans, and that was after several unsuccessful attempts by a band of men to do the same. Most days, the couple just went about their normal business, Jacob at his grocery store, Elizabeth at the school, and caring for her three young charges at home. But any hope for some semblance of a family life was shattered 
on October 17, 1862. That's when another Ohio native, William Quantrill, came to Shawnee, Kansas. Quantrill was born in Canal Dover, Ohio, which today is the Tuscarawas County village of Dover. He was the son of a school teacher, and he moved to Kansas later, earning a living as a gambler. But he also put together a group of men who would roam the Kansas border looking for slaves that were trying to escape from Missouri. He was a staunch supporter of the South. And when the war began in 1861, he and his men joined the Confederacy. They came to be known as Quantrill's Raiders. Among their number was the soon-to-be infamous outlaw Jesse James and his older brother Frank James. Quantrill and his bandits continued focusing along the Missouri-Kansas border, now attacking Union troops and sympathizers. And in October of 1862, he and 140 of his brutal bushwhackers stormed into Shawnee. They herded all the residents into the square and burned down the town. They also killed two residents. One of them was Elizabeth's husband, Jacob Stiles. There are two accounts of what may have happened that day. We don't know which one is accurate. One account said the raiders appeared in the Stiles' front yard when Jacob and another local man went to meet them. They were asked their politics, and when they replied union, they were immediately executed. The other account said the family was inside and that the raiders wore blue uniforms and identified themselves as Union soldiers. Elizabeth opened the door and stood on the porch as they revealed their true intent by raising their guns and shooting her husband. However it happened, a newspaper report at the time said Elizabeth Stiles learned the man who pulled the trigger was a man named George Todd of Kansas City. She knew his name because he told her. He said he was sparing her life so she could go to Kansas City and let them know he had just killed two men in Shawnee. Elizabeth added that after Todd had shot her husband, a man named Palmer, one of their very own neighbors who lived in Shawnee, put the muzzle of his gun into Jacob's mouth and shot him a second time. Many years later, Elizabeth's daughter, Clara, the adopted daughter that had been born to her sister, would tell yet another perspective of that day. She said William Quantrill knew who Elizabeth was and the rumors about her passing information to Union commanders. He confronted her about it, backed her into the small kitchen of the family home, and then looked her up and down with cold eyes while his men urged him to shoot her. Clara said her mom stared back without flinching, after which Quantrill snapped his fingers and commanded, let her go, boys. She's too pretty to shoot. 
Elizabeth escaped that moment, but she was far from safe. The raiders next ambushed a small band of Union soldiers that were on patrol duty, hanging all seven of them while talking about how they wanted to go back to the Stiles farm and do the same to Elizabeth. When Confederate sympathizers finally placed a $1,000 bounty on Elizabeth's head, Army officers at Fort Leavenworth sent soldiers to bring her and her three children to the fort for protection. Elizabeth had to leave behind the home and all the things she had shared and built with Jacob. She didn't even have time to bury her husband, although one newspaper report suggested federal troops were able to later collect Jacob's body and bury it. Elizabeth's family was safe, but her country was not done with her yet. A few weeks after they were settled in at Fort Leavenworth, Elizabeth received a letter from General Jim Lane. He was a Kansas senator, and the letter was co-signed by President Abraham Lincoln himself, asking her to come to Washington, D.C. for a meeting. Nobody had to twist her arm. Watching her husband murdered in front of her and her children, she was determined to avenge his death and defend their shared belief in abolition. Elizabeth went to Washington and presented herself to General Lane, and he told her President Lincoln asked if she would become a Union spy. She didn't hesitate to say yes. Elizabeth returned to Fort Leavenworth, collected her children, and took them back to Washington, D.C., a round trip that took months. She enrolled the two youngest, Sarah and George, in school. And then she and 13-year-old Clara began their careers in espionage. Elizabeth posed as an old pipe-smoking Southern woman and nurse, sometimes concealing messages in her bonnet, sometimes in the folds of her voluminous skirt. Clara pretended to be her granddaughter. They moved throughout the South with the story that they were looking for Clara's father, who was a Confederate soldier. They worked their way into circles where they could collect valuable information about troop movements and sent it on to Union troops. Years later, Clara shared stories about their adventures. In one story, she talked about how she and Elizabeth were traveling on horses, riding on a dark night along the Missouri-Kansas border when Clara fell asleep on her horse. She often did that. She was startled awake by a gunshot and looked up to see her mother trotting back over to join her. Behind Elizabeth was a sentry post that was now empty. Elizabeth told her daughter the sentry had tried to arrest her. Another adventure, and this one highlights Elizabeth's nerves of steel. This one involved Confederate General Sterling Price. Price was in his field headquarters in Jefferson City, Missouri, when his men reported they had caught a spy. Bring him in, the general said. His aide stammered, uh, he's a lady, sir. And so Price's men ushered in a tall woman in muddy clothes who stood ramrod straight like a soldier at attention. 
Price began to growl questions at her. She did not flinch. In the southern twang that she had perfected, she dismissed his questions and asked if she could wash up, get something to eat, and perhaps get a fresh horse before she left. General Price couldn't believe this spy would be demanding such things and restated their suspicions of her spying for the other side. She brushed the charge aside, saying, yes, she was scouting and acting as a nurse, but only in service to her beloved Confederacy. General Price apparently was swayed by the fact that she didn't appear to be nervous at all. He asked her detailed questions about Southern positions. She knew them all and told him straight up with a confidence that comes from being on the right side of things. And so General Price apologized, gave her food and a place to clean up, and provided her with a sturdy horse and supplies and even a new pistol. It wasn't the last time Elizabeth and Clara were arrested as suspicious persons, but with a cool wit, they always managed to convince their captors they had it all wrong. Over the course of the war, the pair operated in 19 different states and Canada. And more than once, Elizabeth was called upon to use her nursing skills, dressing the wounds of soldiers and even performing minor surgery. Elizabeth and Clara retired in November of 1864. That was a few months before the war ended because the president had decided the pair had become too well known to the rebels. He gave Elizabeth an honorable discharge as an army nurse, and then Elizabeth returned home to Ohio. She settled in Geneva for a while, not far from her hometown of Ashtabula, but she didn't really like it there and relocated just across the border to Venango County, Pennsylvania, where she lived with her daughter, Sarah, and son, George, for the next 25 years. By this time, Clara was all grown up and married herself. In 1895, Elizabeth was admitted to the Women's Relief Corps home in Madison, Ohio. The home had been established for needy wives and widows of Union soldiers and for military nurses. And as I said at the start of the story, Elizabeth had come full circle. The home was just a few miles from her birthplace. Elizabeth often talked about her experiences. It was said her mind and recollection of names and dates was still sharp. Three years after entering the home, a month from her 82nd birthday, she passed away after some sort of surgery. Elizabeth Stiles is buried in Middle Ridge Cemetery on Middle Ridge Road in Madison. Clara, by the way, isn't too far away. She was buried at Edgewood Cemetery in Ashtabula Township. She died in 1905 at the age of 53. In 1960, this is decades after both Elizabeth and Clara were gone, a descendant revealed a letter that had been passed down to Clara's grandchildren. Family lore said Elizabeth once carried the fragile and yellow document in the deep pocket that was hidden in the folds of her skirt. Here's what it said. Secretary of War, please refer the bearer, Mrs. Stiles, to the proper place, if there is any, to present her claim for property destroyed by the rebels. Also, her application for employment. 
A. Lincoln, August 19, 
was a John Brown, but not the same John Brown. So I didn't weave this in earlier because I didn't want to confuse anyone. But it's interesting because you've got Elizabeth Stiles from Ohio. You've got the Raider William Quantrill from Ohio. I even mentioned Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, was from Ohio. Yet the person who might be most responsible for turning Kansas into bleeding Kansas is the abolitionist John Brown, who was raised in Hudson, Ohio. A couple of years before Elizabeth and Jacob moved to Shawnee, Kansas, John Brown moved to Kansas with his family. At that time, pro-slave militants were raiding and burning down communities who supported Kansas becoming a free state. Not too many people had actually been killed yet in those raids. But John Brown and a band of his abolitionist friends decided they'd had enough. In an incident called the Potawatomi Massacre, Brown led his group into homes of five men known to be professional slave hunters, dragged them out of their houses, and executed them. That event was the match that lit the powder keg that turned Kansas into bleeding Kansas. In the three months after that massacre, 29 people were killed in various battles and raids. John Brown left Kansas after that, continuing attacks on slave supporters elsewhere, and was eventually caught, of course, and put on trial and hanged. So here's the indirect connection to this story. John Brown died before the Civil War began, but it can be said that the violence that escalated after his attack on those slave hunters was probably still setting the tone years later when Quantrill's raiders rode up and shot Elizabeth's husband in their front yard. This is a part of the program where we invite an Ohio Mysteries listener to be an armchair detective. I'm very excited tonight, Steve. We have some really interesting uh, armchair detectives. We have Mom Dawn Cohen from Green, Ohio, and her 13-year-old daughter, Madison. How perfect is that? Hi, ladies. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Why don't each of you tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Well, we um, moved to Green, Ohio about 20 years ago, and we've loved exploring uh, Ohio. There's so much history, and it has so much to offer with all of its big cities, so we've really enjoyed that. We're definitely history buffs, so that's how I came upon Ohio Mysteries originally. That is perfect. How about you, Madison? Well, yes, I'm definitely a history buff. I love everything to do with it. I think it's just like fascinating that something happened like 300 years ago and we still know about it. And yeah, and I guess my love of reading kind of helps me (laughs) with that because I can just explore so many things. Now, had either of you ever heard of Elizabeth Stiles before? No, had not. What did you think when you heard about this story? I thought it was really cool because it's just like this unassuming like woman and stuff and she did things that men couldn't do. I have no doubt that there were a lot of very strong women in the 19th century. You had to be strong to survive that era. And 
yet there is also a part of us that always thinks of them as being maybe more, you know, petite and quiet and submissive. So when you hear a story like this, there's a part of you that's just like, wow, what it must have been like to be a woman that confident and that strong in the 19th century that she's traveling through 19 states with her 13-year-old daughter. Yeah. And I, I partially credit her parents for that because they both gave her the skills necessary to be such a strong and then ultimately a successful spy. I mean, her uh, father taught her how to use a gun, how to ride, you know, how to basically how to survive, um, you know, out in the woods. Um, and her mom taught her those nursing skills that came in handy later on. And I'm sure she saved lives because of that. So I just think that they were a part of that. And I think that's really, really neat. Now, there was a story told by Clara where it appears Elizabeth must have shot and killed somebody at a sentry post. What did you guys think about that story? Um, like, I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> like, good for her. Like, <laughs> it gave me the chills, and I like the way they they left a little bit of mystery to it. Like, they, they said the sentry post was now empty or abandoned or something, and I thought that was a nice little twist. That's exactly how she framed it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, she's not just protecting herself. She's protecting her daughter at the same time. And that, that really struck me, again, being a parent. I thought to myself, she had two, possibly three adopted children with Sarah, George, and Claire. And I was wondering how they went through the process of deciding who went with her. You know, who is the one? And I thought, why did she have somebody go with her? And I guess because of social norms, she wouldn't have been able to travel alone as a woman, and it would have been more suspicious, probably. So I thought that was fascinating, thinking about how they made the choice of what child would go with her, and did the child say, I want to go, or did she ask one of them to go? That would have been an interesting conversation to hear. I wonder if she probably was raising her children the way she was raised, and they were probably strong, independent, confident. Yeah, all three probably would have gone if they had the chance. And, you know, 13 back in the 19th century is probably like today's 17-year-old. I mean, they had to grow up really fast back then. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. So I want you ladies to put yourselves in Elizabeth's position. Is this something the two of you could have done? I'm involved in musical theater and everything, and so I feel like I would maybe have, I guess, confidence because, you know, like, it takes a lot to be put on the spot and everything. But I don't know, I'd just be so nervous. <laughs> I mean, you definitely need some acting skills in this, so that might have helped. Terrible. <laughs> I would have been no. found out right away. No. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe if you had the experiences she had, she in some ways she was doing it to not only avenge her husband, but to carry on his passion and you know sometimes when you're motivated you've got the proper motivation behind you you can do things you wouldn't have thought otherwise that's yeah. a great point yeah there's an element to the story where I kind of weaved in where she ended up dying, Madison Seminary, and there are a lot of people that go up there on ghost hunt. 
Are you guys believers at all in the possibility of ghosts? Like, for me, probably not, because I kind of was raised, or I, as a child, I was a little more, like, I guess, aware of things, and I was just like, everything has a logical explanation. And so I have a very hard time believing in paranormal activity. I'm just like, well, something must have happened. There must have been, like, there must have been a logical explanation for that. But, I mean, I think it's, like, as long as they're friendly ghosts, I think it's a pretty cool concept. (laughs) Dawn, have you ever experienced something that, in your life, that made you question whether ghosts were possible? I wish I could say yes, but I haven't. I'm super open to it, and I love ghost stories, and I love a good chill, but I haven't had the experience. The closest that I've come to it was when Madison was very little. Yeah. she was, I don't know if she was talking to somebody or something, and I asked her about it, and, and she said she was talking to an old woman who was sitting at our table. And I asked what her name was, and she said, Fridge, which is completely bizarre. <laughs> yeah, a good laugh. What is that short for? Yeah, I don't know. And then I just remember asking her later about it, and she said that she'd gone away. So it, it just, you know, I'm open to it, but I'm very skeptical. Yeah. Do you remember that incident, Madison? Um, No, but I do remember Mom finding, like, um, cause she would write down stories when we were younger, like about things that we did. And so she wrote that one down and I remember what just like freaked me and like not freaked me out, but, but I was just like, why did I say that? It's like, mom asked, well, where is she? And I go, she isn't with us anymore. So I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Has anyone asked ever asked you, have you ever had an experience with a ghost? Um, yes, yes. My brother lived in a haunted house, and I didn't see any ghosts there, but he had, he's 10 years older than me, and he had a lot of very convincing stories that wow. made me think that was possible. You know, another fun aspect about this story is all the Ohio connections, because you've got Quantrill's Raiders coming to town, Quantrill's from Ohio. You've got the Secretary of War, uh, Edwin Stanton. He's from Ohio. You've got the John Brown connection. Did you guys, I forget, did I put the John Brown edition at the bottom of yours? Yeah, you okay. did. Yeah. I couldn't remember if I did that in time. So you've got the Brown, John John Brown connection. He's from Ohio. I mean, it's it's crazy how Ohio had its fingers all over the story. Oh, definitely. And you mentioned, I think you put in the Jesse James connection too. I know that may not be an Ohio connection. Yeah, but was, but that there was were so many different little rabbit cool. holes you could go down. Oh yeah, the, the Jesse James, the Jesse and Frank James. That was really interesting. The other thing that I think about when I think of Elizabeth and her daughter on this mission you know they weren't like traveling in cars and going potty and flushing toilets and staying in hotels I mean these girls young women they had to be camping out sleeping on their horses I mean how rugged 
Um, It must have been for them. Absolutely. And just constantly being on edge. You know, it would be hard to sleep, I would think, because you're you're just you're ready for anything or you want to be ready for anything. And Elizabeth had the extra concern of, you know, wanting to keep her daughter safe. And yeah, I, I can't I just I can't imagine. So, Madison, did you have the opportunity to learn anything extra about Clara? our 13-year-old spy? Uh, Yes, I did. So I did a little more research, and I found just some basic facts about her. So she was born in March of 1852. She was adopted by Elizabeth and uh, Jacob in June of 1861, and she married a man named William Seaman in 1869 at the age of 17. She had two children with him, Charles and Emmeline, which also happened to be her mother's name, so I thought that was a nice nod. She divorced William. I couldn't really find, like, what year. In 1901, Clara married a man named Joseph Chevelle or Chevel. I'm not really sure which. And then she died in 1905 at the age of 53, which is pretty um pretty young i'd say and then just one more like little tidbit technically her full name is clara elizabeth dolph styles seaman chevelle or shovel that's a mouthful (laughs) wow and she divorced her first husband that was a real sign of the independence and confidence of this woman getting divorced in the the 19th century the only thing that i wanted to mention was um I know that there might have been something in your writing about was Elizabeth Stiles a ghost? And I thought a lot about that. And I was kind of of two minds. Part of me thought that she bravely served and she was she served her country and she was successful at, at being a spy and so she'd rest in peace. But then on the other hand, I thought she was very patriotic, out for revenge, partially at least we know. And so then I was thinking maybe she was more restless because she felt that there was more work to be done. So I and I couldn't find anything and for the Madison Seminary about her in particular. Like someone had said, I saw Elizabeth or someone that looked like her. But I just thought it was interesting to think about whether she would have chosen that or not. <laughs> you make a really good point because you could go either way. You could be like, Hey, I lived a full life. I did my job. I'm content. There's no reason for me to stick around. Or you could have the argument where like, this is my personality. I want to be, I still want to be out there. I want to be communicating. I want to be doing things. I don't want to let go of that life. So yeah, you make a good point, but you're right. I could never find a person who said specifically that the encounter they had was Elizabeth, only that they saw people who looked to be in civil war period outfits. So we don't, we don't know. Obviously, we don't know if there are ghosts there at all, but if there are, whether any of them are Elizabeth. But It makes me want to go visit. We've never been there before, so yeah, that's on our to-do list. And then I just found one more story that was on that same site, and I, I, I thought it was pretty cool. But basically, another time, Elizabeth and Clara this time were caught. Elizabeth mysteriously caught an illness, but then recovered very quite quickly when I think she heard, like, federal troops were in the area, and then she was able to convince the Confederates that they were going to visit a friend, and so they let them through. Uh, There you go. See, another point to the acting skills that you would have to have, not just the confidence, but, boy, you had to have some acting chops to get through that. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, Don Madison, it was a great joy to have you guys today. Thanks so much for being our armchair detectives today. Maybe we'll uh, find another cool one and have you back on next year. That would be wonderful. That would be fun. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. David Zuder was raised in Akron, but currently lives in Wadsworth, Ohio. He said he's a guy with a career day job who spends his free time writing and recording songs at home on old-fashioned analog equipment playing live instruments. And the singer-songwriter has been making the most of this year, producing one-minute music videos as a way to pass the time. He started during the pandemic lockdown in April and released a new one on social media every Friday morning. The videos show him in a sort of one-man Zoom screen, playing some of the nine instruments he's fluent in. He's covered everything from rock to bluegrass to polka to country, and he's keeping it up through the end of the year. Be sure to visit davidzutermusic.com to keep up on them, but you can also find him on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. David also writes full-length original songs. You can listen to all of them on his website, and tonight we're featuring one called Paul and Sharon. Well, let's have another listen to Paul and Sharon by David Zuter, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. After years of debate, astronomers resolved today to demote Pluto in a redefinition of what constitutes a planet. Say the same I can't say
I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.